The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and thanks for joining me for your Global News Hour. On today's show, Italy has rejected the sale of synthetic meat in all of its forms. The US presidential candidate openly discusses 9-11 truth. And as early as 1979, health officials have known about vaccine injury occasioning death and chose to spread batches around to avoid detection, alleges Steve Kirsch with documentary evidence. As well, anti-Semitism worsens in Australia, with calls by the government for its victim to seek legal remedy. But first today, Israel and Hamas are edging toward a hostage deal that could result in the release of most of the Israeli women and children held captive by the Palestinian armed group since the October 7 attack, the Washington Post reported Monday, citing a senior Israeli official. The general outline of the deal is understood, the Post's source said, adding that the agreement could be announced within several days once details have been hashed out. According to the report, the agreement could involve the release of Israeli prisoners in groups in exchange for the simultaneous freeing of Palestinian women and young people held by West Jerusalem. In a statement on Monday, Abu Abeda, spokesman for Hamas al-Qassam brigades, said that the group was ready to free up to 70 Israeli children and women in exchange for a five-day truce. Meanwhile, an unnamed Arab official told the Post that Israel was holding at least 120 Palestinian women and young people in prisons. However, according to Ubaida, Hamas has been seeking the release of as many as 200 Palestinian children and 75 women. A potential agreement could result not only in a prisoner swap and a temporary truce, but could also allow more international assistance to Gaza, which has been under complete siege for weeks now, a source told the Post. However, Israel is said to want to verify the exact identities of those to be released, with this point reportedly still subject to negotiations. With no proper treatment and care, 2,000 cancer patients in the Gaza Strip live in catastrophic health conditions. The Turkish-Palestinian Friendship Hospital was forced to shut down its services on November 1 after running out of fuel due to Israel's continuing blockade of the Gaza Strip. The building had also sustained heavy damage from repeated Israeli attacks on the surrounding areas, the Ministry of Health said. Subi Sukaik, the director of the Turkish-Palestinian Friendship Hospital, said more than a month after the start of the war, medicines have now run out. Specialised treatments for cancer patients, such as chemotherapy, and treatment that combines several medications cannot be provided, Sukaik said. Some patients were transferred to Dar es Salaam Hospital in Khan Yunus, which they say is safe, but there is no safe place in Gaza at all. But some of the cancer patients have asked to join their families in the shelter schools to die among them because they know that the hospitals cannot provide them with treatment, he added. Every day we lose two or three cancer patients, Sakeg said. On the night the patients were transferred from the Turkish Friendship Hospital, he says four of them died. The previous night, six. The Gaza Strip's healthcare facilities have been stretched under a 16-year Israeli blockade, before October 7, Sukaik said he handed the health ministry about 1,000 medical referrals for cancer patients every year for their proper treatment and care in more specialised hospitals outside the besieged territory. Patients and their relatives must submit a medical permit request, which can only be approved by the Israeli Coordination Liaison Administration. 
Overall, about 20,000 patients per year sought permits from Israel to leave the Gaza Strip for healthcare before the war, almost a third of them children. According to the World Health Organization, Israel approved about 63% of these medical exit applications in 2022. This has now all come to a grinding halt. And Islamist, Islamist militants will pose a threat to the US and Europe if Israel loses its current war with Hamas. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has claimed, saying Western states would be next in line should his country fail. While the Prime Minister acknowledged that Washington had been very supportive of Israel's military action in Gaza, he rejected any calls for a ceasefire, insisting it would amount to a surrender to Hamas. Netanyahu implored Israel's allies for support during a sit-down with Fox News' Sean Hannity on Monday, stating, we have to win not only for our sake, but for the sake of the Middle East as well as for the sake of our Arab neighbours and the world at large. We have to win to protect Israel. We have to win to safeguard the Middle East. We have to win for the sake of the civilised world. That's the battle we're fighting, and it's being waged right now. There is no substitute for that victory, he continued, adding, if we don't win now, then Europe is next and you're next. Insisting that our fight is your fight, the PM went on to allege that an axis of terror exists between Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen, and the Iranian government claiming Tehran's minions seek to bring the Middle East and the world back to the Dark Ages. On the other side stands Israel, the modern Arab states, of course the US, all the forces that want to see peace, prosperity, for the Middle East and for the world, Netanyahu added. And Israel has raised about 30 billion shekels or 7.8 billion US dollars in debt since the start of the conflict with Hamas, the country's finance ministry revealed Monday. According to the ministry, $4.1 billion of that amount was dollar-denominated debt raised in issuances in international markets. On Monday, the ministry reported raising another $957 US million in the local market in its weekly bond auction. Officials claim that the government can now fully and optimally finance all of its needs. The Israeli government has significantly increased expenses in order to fund the military and to compensate businesses near the border with Gaza, as well as the families of victims and hostages taken by Hamas. All of this has led to a record budget deficit, which last month ballooned to $6 billion, a more than sevenfold increase compared to just a year ago. Finance Ministry has also announced plans to borrow 75% more in November than last month. Meanwhile, Bank of Israel Governor Amir Yaron has called on the government to balance supporting the economy and maintaining a sound fiscal position. Last month, international credit rating agency S&P cut Israel's rating from stable to negative. It was followed by Fitch, which has placed the country on negative ratings watch, warning that a prolonged conflict could result in a significant deterioration of Israel's credit score. And the US and UK have announced jointly coordinated sanctions targeting the Palestinian armed groups Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. In a statement Tuesday, the US Department of Treasury said that it was imposing a third round of sanctions on Hamas, targeting the group's leadership and the mechanisms through which Iran provides support to the group and the PIJ. Hamas's actions have caused immense suffering and shown that terrorism does not occur in isolation, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said in a statement. Together with our partners, we are decisively moving to degrade Hamas's financial infrastructure, cut them off from outside funding, and block the new funding channels they seek to finance their heinous acts. 
Britain added sanctions on four Hamas senior leaders and two financiers, the Foreign Office said in a statement, including the group's political leader in Gaza and the commander of its military arm. And Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed on Tuesday reiterated his pledge not to invade neighbouring nations over the Red Sea, but insisted that his government would not abandon its demand for port access. Abiy's remarks last month about the Red Sea raised regional concerns, particularly as tensions emerged with neighbouring Eritrea, which is a long coastline. In a televised speech on October 13, Abiy said that landlocked Ethiopia is a nation whose existence is tied to the Red Sea, a key waterway for global trade. He said Africa's second most populous country needed access to a port, adding, if we plan to live, to live together in peace, we have to find a way to mutually share with each other in a balanced manner. We join this report now from African News. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed on Tuesday reiterated before Parliament his pledge not to invade neighbouring nations over the Red Sea ports in an effort to alleviate regional fears, but insisted that his government will not abandon its demand for access. We have no intention of violating or invading the sovereignty of others, but we do call for a discussion on getting access to the sea to conduct business. We don't know what will happen if our demand is not resolved through discussion, negotiation and commercial terms. However, Ethiopia will not fire a single bullet at Eritrea, Somalia, Djibouti or Kenya. Ethiopia lost its coastline after Eritrea broke away from Addis Ababa and formally declared independence in 1993 following a three-decade war. Abiy's remarks last month about the Red Sea raised regional concerns, particularly as tensions emerged with neighboring Eritrea, which has a long coastline. We do not choose to resolve this via conflict. We aim to prevent the conflict, but if people are hungry, they will do anything but accept to die. Ethiopia enjoyed access to a port in Eritrea until the two countries went to war in 1998. Since then, the East African nation has relied largely on Djibouti for imports and exports. Counting has begun in Liberia's presidential runoff election after neither of the main candidates won October's first round outright. Just 7,000 votes separated the current president, retired football star George Weir, and former vice president Joseph Bokay. While Mr Weir won the first round, he failed to get more than the 50% of the vote triggering a runoff. Counting will conclude on Wednesday, the National Elections Commission said. This is the fourth presidential election since Liberia's second civil war, which ended more than 20 years ago after more than 50,000 people died. The opponent, Joseph Bouquet, has focused on investing in agriculture and infrastructure in his campaigning. He also highlighted the need to rescue the nation from what he calls mismanagement by Weir's administration. The president has been talking about improving education and dealing with unemployment. He has asked voters for more time to see the results of his first-term promises to root out corruption and improve livelihoods. Liberia is still recovering from the impact of two civil wars between 1989 and 2003 and the Ebola epidemic that killed thousands of people between 2013 and 16. According to the World Bank, the West African nation's economy expanded by 4.8% in 2022 because of mining and a relatively good agricultural harvest. This is not the first time the two men have faced each other. In 2017, Weir beat Bouquet, gaining 61% of the vote in the second round. And the Cambodian government has been accused of using direct and subtle threats to evict thousands of families living near the Angkor Wat UNESCO World Heritage Site. 
A report by human rights group Amnesty International concluded international law had been breached. The government spokesperson said that there was not right and insisted that the relocations were voluntary. Families are being moved to a new community 15 miles or 25 kilometres away. Cambodian authorities claim squatters are setting up informal settlements which damage the environment. Government spokesman Penn Bona said the relocation of 10,000 families was in line with rules set down by the United Nations heritage body UNESCO, which banned structures or people living on the site. With more, we join Tony Cheng's report from Al Jazeera. The temples of Angkor, celebrated around the world and a source of national pride to many Cambodians. The 12th century site attracts tens of millions of visitors every year. And at its pre-COVID-19 peak, generated hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. But the Cambodian government says the maintenance and protection of the temple complex requires it to move people further away. That's been happening since the beginning of the year, often under military supervision. We lost everything in the relocation. We don't have any hopes left. We owe the bank and we still have to repay every month. It's very hard to accept. Many of the relocation sites are barely habitable, barren stretches of land with no water, sanitation or housing. We found that a lot of them were threatened by local officials, being forced to move, uh, were told that they would um, not receive any compensation, there would be power cuts, flooding, and some were even threatened with arrest. Angkor Wat has been a World Heritage Site for 30 years. And Cambodian officials have used that status to justify the relocations, a claim that UNESCO denies. But Amnesty's calls for UNESCO to intervene have so far gone unanswered, as did Al Jazeera's invitation for the agency to comment on this report. The temples have rarely benefited those who live in its shadows. The province of Siem Rip is one of the poorest in Cambodia. Half of its population exists on 75 cents a day. India's National Space Agency is looking to launch at least two more missions this year as a part of the country's ambitious effort to set up its own space station by 2035 and send its first manned mission to the moon by 2040. The targets have been set by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. In 2024, the Space Agency will conduct an experiment in a crew module to ensure it remains upright after splashing down. The astronauts for the mission, who were initially being trained in Russia, are undergoing further training in India to prepare for takeoff. Lunar sample return missions are also considered critical as they will lay the groundwork for India to launch a manned mission to the moon. The lunar hop performed by the Chandrayaan-3 launched earlier this year is considered the precursor to the upcoming mission. It's demonstrated Chandrayaan's 3's ability to lift off from the surface of the moon, meaning it could return with samples in the future. And the inaugural conference of Australians for Science and Freedom brings together thinkers and community leaders to share learnings, formulate plans, and help establish new and emerging networks and organisations to restore a thriving Australian society founded on science and freedom. Join the exciting lineup of health professionals, scientists, economists, lawyers, journalists, and community leaders to discuss a range of hot issues, including healthcare policy, democracy, and human rights, education, the media, and the role of grassroots organisations. The Australians for Science and Freedom Conference will be held at the University of New South Wales, High Street, Kensington, in New South Wales, from 8.30am to 6pm on Saturday, the 18th of November, and 8.30am to 4pm on Sunday, the 19th. Plus, TNT Radio will be broadcasting from the conference. 
Tickets are available now at scienceandfreedom.org. And coming up after the break, it is the truth, not lies, that causes the greatest reaction from both the media and political operatives, explains US presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. You're listening to Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Rick Munn. I'm looking also at South Africa in terms of uh, ESCOM, which is a company that we have talked about a lot here. That's the South African electricity provider. ESCOM has posted a massive 24 billion rand loss for 2022-2023 financial year, exacerbated by a huge escalation in load shedding, which is basically blackouts, for want of a better expression, mounting municipal debt and skyrocketing losses due to criminal activity. That's both within the company, I would say, and outside of the company. The group presented its first full-year financials for the 12 months ending 31st of March on Tuesday. It said the year was characterized by a significant deterioration of performance, including a steep decline in energy availability of 56%, down from 62%. So half the country are having difficulty getting any electricity at all. And most places are undergoing what's called uh, load shedding, which means for up to 10 hours per day, you could be disconnected from the electricity supply in South Africa. Locked and loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. A better business tip from TNT Radio. The benefits of advertising on today's News Talk, TNT Radio, should be clear to businesses of any shape or size. It can be accessed anywhere, anytime, by anybody and is the perfect way to build brand awareness and stimulate digital activity. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. This This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Vivek Ramaswamy's presidential campaign has continually ruffled the feathers of the political establishment and the truther movement itself. Ramaswamy was once linked to the World Economic Forum, something he has distanced himself from, much like Tulsi Gabbard. Only Ramaswamy refuses to give up and keeps fighting on. Here in this revealing interview with Tucker Carlson, 22 years on from the event that forever changed the United States, a presidential candidate is speaking to the world's arguably biggest news broadcaster about 9-11 truth. So in fairness, Tucker, I didn't suggest it. I explicitly said that the government absolutely lied to us. The 9-11 Commission lied. The FBI lied. Now, am I, is this a core point of my campaign? No, it's not. I actually went on a comedy show where some guy asked me, was the moon landing fake? I said, I think it was real. Then he asked me, did the government tell us the truth about 9-11? I said, no, they did not. So so in response to a question, I'm going to answer honestly. Yeah. And the thing I had in mind was the facts. There's this guy, Al Bayoumi. Now, rewind back to 9-11 and the pre-9-11 day. Think of how ludicrous this story is. A 42-year-old graduate student, and there's nothing wrong with being 42 and going back to school. My dad went back to school much later in life. But he's a 42-year-old graduate student who receives the two terrorists, two of the terrorists who flew planes into buildings in the United States of America not that long later, receives them at the airport in LA, takes them to his house, spends lots of time with them, integrates them into the community. But the account for what he said happened was he met them randomly at the airport. That doesn't make much sense on the face. It's kind of happened to be at LAX and no, exactly. two guys and from hey, Saudi. You know, you, you, look like, uh, you look like guys we might get along with and then suddenly become fast friends at the airport so much so that he takes them up. So it's a little suspicious. But hey, 
the 9-11 commission and the FBI looked into it. And at the time they said his account is accurate. Yeah, it sounds legit. It sounds super legit. Right. Now, there was some hanging out at LAX. You know, these guys came from Saudi Arabia. Does this guy who received them have any ties to Saudi Arabia? That's where they landed. But now, 20 years later, in 2021 and 2022, the FBI quietly declassifies documents. And they have to. 20 years later is the deadline. That suggests that, oh, wait a minute. They did know, actually, that this guy was a Saudi intelligence operative. Interesting how that works. Just slips that right under there 20 years later. Now, there are real consequences for this right now because there's a federal case of families of victims on 9-11 that want accountability, that are determining answers. So they're suing the Saudi government. And the case turns on whether or not this is true. Because you know those attackers were from Saudi Arabia. The Bush administration... You'd have the 9-11 Commission, bipartisan. You have the fact of the FBI, CIA, everybody saying that, no, this guy was really just acting independently here. But now we say is a Saudi intelligence operative. There's really the question of whether the Saudi Arabia owes damages to these families. So this is a relevant question. So is this the main point I'm focused on my campaign? No, I'm not. We have to focus on the future of the country. But if I'm asked a question and I answer honestly based on the facts, I don't think they would have come for me. If this was false, if this was ludicrous. Of course. They're well, lying is never punished. Lying is never punished. But it's speaking the truths you're not supposed to speak. That's what actually attracts the immune response. And now what Vivek Ramaswamy is going to say should provide comfort and encouragement to all listeners. I think that there's a bipartisan consensus in this country right now that we the people, we can't handle the truth. Yeah. It's like Jack Nicholson at the end of the movie, right? Yes. You can't handle the truth. You need me on that wall. My view, my basic view in this campaign is, no, we don't need you on that wall. And yes, we can handle the truth. COVID-19, what was the origin? What did we know about the vaccines before we mandated them? What did we know about Hunter Biden's dealings before we systematically suppressed that story? What do we know about the truth of what happened on January 6th? What do we know about that Nashville shooter manifesto, the transgender individual who shot up a bunch of people in a Christian school? That's why I went to Nashville not that long ago, because Bill Lee, a Republican governor of Tennessee, now wants to pass a red flag law in Tennessee without releasing that manifesto. The whole point is the public can't handle the truth. And so I had offline discussions. I mean, we're talking with, you know, big donors in the Republican Party, big folks in media, executives and otherwise who said, hey, listen, okay, even if what you're saying is true, this is not helping you. You said, why is that the first question that should go through my mind? Right. I mean, personally, I think. The way I'm running this campaign is I'm not thinking about what's helping me or not before I say it. So far, at least that actually that approach does seem to be helping me. Yes, we're doing all right. But even if I weren't, I'd rather lose some election than to play some political snakes and ladders of what we're supposed to say. And I think that that's really one of the questions at issue today, as it was in 1776. Do we believe that the public can be trusted with the truth, whatever the truth is, just give me the hard truth. Certainly a breath of fresh air there. Rep Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican from Georgia, forced a vote on impeaching Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas to the floor through a rule that allows any single member to force a snap vote on resolutions, including constitutional matters such as impeachment. Eight Republicans joined with Democrats to vote 209 to 201 to send her resolution to committees for possible consideration like any other bill. They're under no obligation to do anything. 
Impeachment is usually reserved for grave misconduct in office, but is instead being wielded in an extraordinary effort to remove Mayorkas for his handling of the southern border. The vote and its GOP support showed a growing appetite to reach for Congress' most powerful weapons and redefine what the Constitution means by impeachable high crimes and misdemeanours. Impeaching a cabinet official for their policy decisions would be unprecedented. Green, in a floor speech Monday, accused Mayorkas of a pattern of conduct that is incompatible with the laws of the US, as she cited record numbers of illegal border crossings, an influx of drugs and his open border policies. The impeachment resolution accuses him of failing to adhere to his oath to defend and secure our country and uphold the Constitution. After the vote, Green said she may try again to push an impeachment vote to the floor and argued her colleagues would face pressure from voters to impeach him. Here is Speaker of the House Mike Johnson explaining his perspective and the process of impeachment. I have been on record many times. I served on the House Judiciary Committee. We have oversight over his department. He's been in front of me under oath on multiple occasions. I've been very clear with him. I told him the last time he was before us, which is probably two or three months ago, that I said, I'm not actually sure what you do at the Department of Homeland Security other than great harm. I believe he's done it since the day he walked in the door. And, and I believe those probably are impeachable offenses. Um, there's a deliberate process. There's a, a due process that, goes, process that goes along with this. Um, next to a declaration of war, impeachment is arguably one of the heaviest powers that the House has. And so we have to do it in the right manner. But um, the, the evidence that's built up against Mayorkas is so complete. I think he's probably one of the worst cabinet secretaries on the evidence, objectively speaking, in the history of the country. Um, he's opened the border by intentional policy decisions and all the terrible societal ills that come from that. So um, our, our Homeland Security Committee has done a very deliberate, drawn out process, building the record, building the evidence. It is a five phase process. They're in the fifth phase right now. And so it, we'll have to figure out how all this fits into the sequence. But um, I understand the angst of our members. I, I share it myself and the American people really want something done on that border. And, and this is an important gesture. Time to read some news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. There's high drama on Capitol Hill. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy accused of assaulting a fellow Republican in the halls of Congress. Taiwan says it still has a few more years to build up its defences against a potential Chinese invasion. And it's been revealed Israel has raised close to $8 billion in debt since the start of its war with Hamas. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 24-7, 365, we never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk, this is TNT Radio. Welcome back. Suella Braverman has launched a full-scale attack on her old boss, Rishi Sunak, a day after he sacked her as Home Secretary. In a blistering letter to the Prime Minister, she said he had repeatedly failed on key policies and broken pledges over immigration. Sunak had adopted wishful thinking to avoid having to make hard choices, she wrote. The broadside comes on the eve of a key ruling on the government's Rwanda plan. Wednesday morning, the UK Supreme Court will deliver its verdict on the lawfulness of the postponed scheme to send some asylum seekers to Rwanda to claim asylum there. 
The ruling on the flagship policy will be a key moment for Sunak's government and could reignite divisions among Tory MPs over the ECHR Human Rights Treaty. In her letter, the former Home Secretary claimed she struck a secret deal to serve in Sunak's cabinet in exchange for a series of commitments in key areas after Liz Truss's premiership imploded last year. Her support, she added, had been a pivotal factor in allowing Sunak to win the support of Tory MPs and enter number 10 Downing Street. She added that she had argued within government for curbs on human rights law to ensure the Rwanda policy was not derailed by illegal challenges. But compromises from Sunak during the passage of the Illegal Migration Act, she wrote, had left the policy vulnerable to legal challenges under the European Convention of Human Rights even if the Supreme Court declares it lawful. If the ruling goes against the government, she added, he would have wasted a year on the flagship law to stop small boat crossings, only to arrive back at square one. Worse than this, your magical thinking, believing that you can will your way through this without upsetting polite opinion, has meant that you have failed to prepare any sort of credible plan B, she wrote. Number 10 spokesman thanked Braverman for her service, but added the Prime Minister was proud to appoint a strong united team yesterday focused on delivering for the British people. He said the government had brought forward the toughest legislation to tackle illegal migration this country has seen and has subsequently reduced the number of boat crossings by a third this year. And whatever the outcome of the Supreme Court tomorrow, the Prime Minister will continue that work, he said. In her letter, the former Home Secretary told Sunak he had manifestly and repeatedly failed to deliver on policy priorities. Either your distinctive style of government means you are incapable of, of, capable of doing so, she wrote, or as I must surely conclude now, you never had any intention of keeping your promises. She added, someone needs to be honest. Your plan is not working. We have endured record election defeats. Your resets have failed. We are running out of time. You need to change course urgently. Braverman was sacked from her role Monday after opponents accused her of stoking tensions ahead of pro-Palestinian marches in London. She lost a job days after she claimed police had applied a double standard to protesters in an article for the Times newspaper. Braverman said Sunak had failed to rise to the challenge posed by the increasingly vicious anti-Semitism and extremism displayed on our streets. And in Australia, a prominent Jewish school is being advised to seek legal options after a business owner refused to lease a jumping castle and bragged about it on social media. The Australian Jewish Association late on Tuesday afternoon shared a screenshot of an email from Western Sydney jump owner Tanya Issa responding to Masada College, saying she had the right to decline any booking at any time. There's no way I'm taking a Zionist booking. I don't want your blood money. Free Palestine, she wrote in response to a quote from the Upper North Shore School. Miss Issa, who has owned Western Sydney Jump for 10 years, posted the screenshots to her business's social media. The account later appeared to be shut down. Australian Jewish Association President Dr David Adler told Sky News Australia he was stunned with the response from the business owner. This is blatant anti-Semitism and it's crazy stuff. Australian children in Sydney have no role in any conflict overseas and it's out of hand, he said. New South Wales Premier Chris Minns was made aware of the situation Tuesday, condemning the act and describing it as outrageous. This week, the state government ordered a review into the race hate laws reformed in 2018 amid rising tensions in Australia over the Israel-Hamas conflict. Minns said Section 93Z of the Crime Act will be put under the microscope as no case to date has been successfully prosecuted since it was improved. Meanwhile, Jewish Group co-CEO Alex Richen said, sadly, this is indicative of the surge of anti-Semitism in our country 
under the disguise of political activism. And one of the most difficult things on social media to handle is being fact-checked. Rarely, if ever, one's post gets fact-checked, are you able to challenge it? But fact-checking is far from perfect. Here is another case of fact-checking insanity. Jonathan Turley writes, NBC suggested that Ron DeSantis half lied when he claimed to have arranged the removal of hundreds of American citizens from Israel. The network said it was only half true because someone else flew the planes. DeSantis only supplied the money. Here is what NBC calls a fact check of a Republican. NBC's News Peter Klein explained, on October 12, DeSantis signed an executive order that allowed the Florida Division of Emergency Management to pay for Americans in Israel to fly back to the US. The flights, however, were organized by Tampa-based nonprofit Project Dynamo, which specializes in rescuing Americans in distress, and DeSantis's primary role was to fund the flights. Makes a great defense for someone who orders a hitman and says, well, I didn't pull the trigger. Coming up after the break, it has been hailed by Bill Gates as a way to save the planet, but Italy has banned synthetic meat. You're listening to Compass on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Children, children, settle down. No more Trump chants. We really, really want to hear from these candidates on the stage, and they worked really hard for us tonight. Children, settle down. Last night's third Republican debacle proved, in large part by the performance of Vivek Ramaswamy, just how irrelevant these so-called Republican debates are. Vivek took the GOP and the moderators hard into the corner before boarding them. He called out Ronna McDaniel for her consistent track record of failure and offered to give her his time so that she could come to the stage and resign. And then he said to the moderators that they should be replaced by Joe Rogan, Tucker Carlson, and Elon Musk. But his best line of the night was saying, if you want to elect Dick Cheney in three-inch heels, we've got two on stage tonight, referring to Nikki Haley and and Ron disappoints us. Nicely played, Vivek. I see what you did there. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Challenging the consensus and debunking the narrative. This is Viewpoint. George Soros has supported the election of numerous left-wing DA candidates. Since 2016, when Soros first began to back the campaigns of district attorneys, Capital Research Center researchers have tracked more than $29 million in funding from Soros through political action committees, PACs, formed specifically to back left-wing DA candidates. In total, Soros's cash has generously supported over 20 individual candidates, many of whom won their elections and remain in office. They include Diana Beckton, Contra Costa County, California. Beckton was one of the first in the position to have no prior experience as a prosecutor. During Beckton's first years in office, four Contra Costa cities made the list of the top 100 most dangerous cities in California in 2018, and both violent crime and property crime increased in 2019. Soros has spent a combined $6 million on California DA races, much of it wasted on failed candidates. But almost half was spent on the successful campaign of George Gascon from Los Angeles DA. 
Since the election, Gascon's implementation of left-wing policies led to a crime wave with soaring homicide rates and increased shoplifting sprees. Kim Fox, Cook County, Chicago, Illinois, who's known for her 2019 decision to drop charges against Jussie Smollett for his infamous hate crime hoax, has made headlines for presiding over Chicago's largest spike in homicides in more than 30 years, while her office dropped charges against 30% of felony defendants during 2020. Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. In a first for the developed world, the European nation of Italy has decided to ban all fake meat from the country, citing serious health concerns. Numerous studies show that lab-grown synthetic meat of the kind being promoted by billionaire eugenicist Bill Gates is triggering the formation of turbo cancers in humans, reports Natural News. In contrast to a recent decision by the Biden regime to fast-track the approval of synthetic meat here in America, Italy is taking the opposite approach by banning the stuff outright before it gets the chance to harm the Italian people, the report added. Italy is the first nation to say no to synthetic food, to so-called synthetic meat, announced Health Minister Araccio Scalacci. It does so with a formal and official act. The resolution calls for a commitment to ban the production, marketing and import of synthetic foods within our territory. Let's now hear from Italy's Minister for Agriculture, Francesco Lola Brigida. Italy is the first nation to say no to synthetic food, to so-called synthetic meat. It does so with a formal and official act. The resolutions call for a commitment to ban the production, marketing and import of synthetic foods within our territory. These regulations aim to regulate situations where the environment or public health could be at risk or when there is uncertainty regarding the effects of certain products that are being or will be introduced to the market or consumed. It is crucial to have measures in place to address these potential risks and ensure the safety of the environment and public health. Much of the push in favour of synthetic meat comes not only from Gates, but also other globalists such as Klaus Schwab. The World Economic Forum claim it is necessary to stop global warming and climate change. Gates' dream for the world probably will not come to fruition, at least as he envisioned it, because science continues to show that synthetic meat consumption is linked to cancer via the immortalised cell lines that the body uses to manufacture cancer cells in the presence of a provoking substance, in the case, fake meat. In an unprecedented mood, Biden's Department of Agriculture approved the sale of Gates' lab-grown chicken meat back in late June. This approval from regulators will allow fake meat companies everywhere to flood the U.S. food market with their toxic, deadly products. At the centre of this unprecedented manipulation of the planet and its people is Bill Gates, who faced an antitrust trial over his behaviour at the helm of Microsoft, who learned how to reinvent himself and got himself elevated into the highest echelons of society through funding and profiting from vaccine investment. The one part of medicine that can never be scrutinised for which every allegation against the safety aspect of injecting any old substance under the skin to prevent a disease has been thoroughly debunked, normally in advance. Let's go back to 2008, where Klaus Schwab is interviewing Bill Gates. What would you like to see as your legacy in 10, 15 years? Uh, Of the new work? Of the new work, yeah. yeah. Of your new function. Well, I, I... 
set very ambitious goals because I'm quite optimistic. If you look at, say, the, the 20 diseases uh, that our Global Health Program goes after, I'd hope that within 15 years, over half of those, we could have had a very dramatic impact. You know, huge change in the uh, mortality rates in developing countries, which then has this effect of reducing population growth. That's the this big benefit that then makes everything like education and nutrition a lot easier. So I, I have very high expectations. Today, Steve Kirsch posted a document from 1979 concerning the DTP vaccine, that is diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis. In his post on X, he said, and I quote, in case you were wondering, this is why they mix up the lot numbers. It's to avoid figuring out that the vaccines are not safe. From the document dated August 27, 1979, an internal document from Alan Bernstein and internal correspondence read, DTP vaccine. After reporting on the SID or sudden infant death cases in Tennessee, we discussed the merits of limiting distribution of a large number of vials from a single lot to a single state, country or city health department and obtained agreement from the senior management staff to proceed with such a plan. In other words, the batches were split to hide the link argues Kirsch. Now, if that was known 44 years ago, then Gates, who did not get into the vaccine business until about 30 years later, with his level of power created through his money, knew or ought to have known this fact. Yet instead of bringing truth to power, he instead decided to hide behind the shield and profit and whatever else a eugenicist likes to achieve, one of which is to vaccinate animals. Well, the Gates Foundation has partnered with Diffit on a great number of things, and uh, among those are our work we do together on livestock, uh, helping animals survive uh, either by having vaccines or better genetics, uh, helping them be more productive. It's making a big difference. Uh, you know, I was down in Ethiopia seeing how chickens are out there uh, laying more eggs, getting more nutrition, uh, and even some small savings into the household. So, uh, Edinburgh happens to be where. A lot of the world's best work on this is done, and that's why uh, DFID and the Gates Foundation are, are funding scientists here. Next up, and controlling populations where Gates praised China's COVID response, even if it meant taking away civil liberties. It's always a net good to trade away something you don't own in order to get your own way under the guise of safety. In their typical, fairly authoritarian way, they did a very good job of suppressing the, the virus. Uh, you know, there may have been a lot of individual rights that were violated there, but the overall macro effect that they achieved uh, is, is, you know, quite a, um, kind of amazing. Uh, they had the benefit that it was really Hubei, you know, 60 million people, and they brought in the health resources, 1.4 billion, and their ability to build hospitals uh, very, very quickly and force compliance with masks and, and various other things. But they've kept the virus numbers to very low levels uh, compared to most countries. Yet, strangely, Gates never seems to be interested in the origins of COVID. Could it be possibly have been staged or planned, therefore? Now, from the fact check by fullfact.org. Event 201 was an exercise organised in October 2019 to simulate what might happen if there was ever a severe pandemic. We've been asked by readers to look into whether it really happened, why it wasn't covered much in the media, and whether it's simply a coincidence that it took part just months before the COVID-19 pandemic started. The event was real, 
but the fact it took place just before the pandemic started doesn't mean the organisers had any secret knowledge, which has been suggested by some, says the fact check. The organisers said they ran the exercise because the world has seen a growing number of epidemic events. Previous similar exercises run by the same organisations and others have not been followed by similar outbreaks. The specifics of the exercise should not be taken as predictions for the COVID-19 pandemic, argued full fact. Well, not an argument, they tell you, and that's right, right? So continuing from the article, what was the event? Event 201 was run by the Johns Hopkins Centre for Health Security in partnership with, wait for it, the World Economic Forum and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It invited people from business, government and public health to simulate coordinating a policy response to a theoretical pandemic. Simulation was based on a coronavirus, but that doesn't mean the organisers knew about the one that causes COVID-19, argues full fact. Of course not. The first known cases of COVID-19 weren't publicly identified until December of 2019, although media reports of unpublished data suggest that some early cases may have been inflicted, infected, I should say, in November of that year. Well, Event 201 was held in October of 2019. Let's play the clip now. The first voice you will hear is from Event 201, the second being the real event. And this repeats over and over in this clip. ...have banned travel from the worst affected areas. The president has made a decision to suspend all travel to the United Kingdom and Ireland. Dis and misinformation circulating over the internet. Across the world, misinformation about the virus is being shared online. A significant demand for N95 masks and gloves are on the rise. The demand for N95 masks to prevent the deadly airborne virus has surged. We could eventually have 52 million treatment courses per year, but it will take many months to get there. We're still many months out from having something that we can really deploy to the public. And 65% of those polled are eager to take the vaccine, even if it's experimental. The new poll finds that 49% of Americans say they would get a COVID-19 vaccine should an effective one. So do you think it was staged or are both Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab merely oracles? Now, who is going to fact check the fact checkers? Asked Domini Petrick, an MD. Facebook released a statement on December 15, 2016, advising users that they were starting a program to work with third-party fact-checking organisations that are signatories of Pointers International Fact-Checking Code of Principles. Pointers journalists are funded by, guess what, George Soros's Open Society Foundations, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Both Soros and Gates were both big-time supporters of the Clinton Foundation, as well as Hillary's election campaign fund. And Danish journalist Eben Thranholm said, it gave me goosebumps to hear those names because they have actually a very strong political agenda. It's like there are a lot of people who think that it's dangerous not to be able to control the media. So to sort out what is supposedly the real news and the fake news is actually a way to control the narrative. So if you want to be in opposition to these political powers, then you are going to be censored. Of course, this is a kind of censorship. That article was written seven years ago. And on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation website today, there is a page which confirms a donation to the Pointer Institute from November 2015 for the purpose to improve the accuracy and worldwide media of claims related to global health and development for the sum of $382,997. Of course, the fact checkers will argue that Gates no longer funds them, but with a myriad of interweaving donors and philanthropic capitalists, 
it wouldn't be too hard to dig deeper to find those who fund fact-checking also benefit from said fact-checks. In this clip, he claims he doesn't talk about masks. I don't remember talking about masks at all. Yeah, I just don't think of wearing a mask as such a deep inconvenience. I mean, you know, we ask people to wear pants. Uh, you know, why, why was this is politicized? Early stage of the infection, uh, we thought uh, this was about coughing. We didn't know the simple masks would provide so much benefit. Uh, you get the message about masks to be a, you know, kind of bar bipartisan, let's protect uh, other people uh, type message. And I don't remember talking about masks. How about that? How come Bill Gates doesn't get fact-checked? Although, hold that thought, there was one when he came out a few months back and said that the vaccine wasn't working as well as expected. I know I shared that post on Facebook and got banned for three months for doing so, even with Bill, even with Bill Gates. Now, one such popular fact check is used to discredit claims that Gates wants to depopulate the planet. From the fact check article, first, we've got population, he said, during the talk organised by TED. The world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15%. But there we see an increase of about 1.3. The fact check article calls the claim false because there is no evidence that Gates wants to depopulate through bad medicine. Rather, that in areas of the world with provided birth control and better health outcomes, people choose to have less children. That is a very convenient version of events. Here's why. Let's go back to vaccines. In August 2020, the Associated Press published an article, UN says new polio outbreak in Sudan caused by oral vaccine. This was a vaccine strain of polio, a supposed dead virus. The same happened in India where... There were many posts suggesting that some children were given up to 50 doses of the vaccine before an outbreak of polio in that country. Here is Bill Gates explaining the best investment he ever made, a miracle that profit and health can occur simultaneously and that no one had thought of that before. Mr Gates, uh, you wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, earlier this month describing the best investment you've ever made. It might surprise people. Can you explain it to us? Yeah, our foundation uh, put over $10 billion over the last 20 years into some uh, health delivery organizations, in particular one that buys vaccines for the poorest countries, Gavi, and one that uh, buys drugs uh, for HIV and, and malaria. And they've really had a, quite a dramatic impact. And so now we have each of those organizations going back out, uh, mostly to the donor government saying, hey, are you going to renew the commitment here uh, so we can keep improving these health outcomes? And so I shared the fact that any way you look at it, from a humanitarian point of view, from an economic point of view, it's uh, clearly one of the best investments. Here is Vandana Shiva explaining Gates's agenda when it comes to food production. Bill Gates is not a philanthropist. He gives a little bit of money oh. to take over entire sectors. I work on seed. The big seed banks are called the CJR system. He gives a million here, but he takes all the seeds of that system. All of these seed banks of the world, he now controls by giving mm. a tiny bit. But that's not where he stops. He then develops, promotes technologies for patenting, gene editing technologies, uh, digital sequence technologies. He controls the seeds of the world. He finances the Swalbard Seed Bank. Then he creates patent systems. 
and he destroys the international system that controls the country's rights to their seed, the Convention on Biological Diversity, hmm. the FAO Treaty on Seed. He destroys and undercuts them so that all the seeds of the world are his seeds and he can be the new Monsanto oh, on a global okay. scale. That's why he's buying more farmland? Yes, he's the biggest farmland owner of America. But he's also the one who has created in his book, How to Deal with a Climate Catastrophe. He cooked up a word, which I had never heard before that, called net zero. And he said, we, can, we have to solve climate problems by net zero. He says, it doesn't mean we'll stop polluting. He says, it just means we have to find other people's lands for offsets to absorb our pollution. So he's bought all the land in America, but he wants our land for carbon offsets. And this is the net zero they're trying to push in the climate discussions. It's My a land God. grab. Fact-checking like science is really good at finding favour in those of its benefactors. And perhaps the last word should go to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who for years litigated against corporations. Kennedy could well be the wild card pick by Donald Trump to become his non-party aligned attorney general. Notice how no one is talking about that so as not to alert those who stand to be exposed. Bill Gates has taken over control of WHO and um, it's become his vessel for, you know, what he calls philanthrocapitalism, which is a way of making a lot of money um, by uh, by controlling these international institutions that make public health policy. And, uh, you know, for example, you get the WHO, which funds most of the African health departments to use its power and leverage over those departments to mandate vaccines for the children in those countries. Um, and those uh, vaccines are uh, are made almost invariably by companies in which Gates has a, a, a private financial interest or which his foundation has a private financial interest. It was the same thing that he did with the Green Revolution in Africa. Uh, he got African countries uh, to switch from traditional agriculture and switch it to uh, GMO monocultures. Gates did bring in the corporations that he, you know, owns Coca-Cola to buy the corn syrup and Kraft cheese and McDonald's and Monsanto and Cargill and all these other corporations to build the infrastructure for the, these GMO products to build the supply chain and then create those products and sell them to U.S. corporations. And it's been an absolute calamity for the people of Africa. And I think there's 30 million additional people who have become food insecure as a direct result of, the, of Gates's Green Revolution. And uh, but Gates and his companies have made a killing on it. Meanwhile, we must achieve net zero. Climate change will kill us. Overpopulation is a serious problem that can be helped if we get lower population and fix climate change. Take my experimental vaccine. I've made billions of dollars from vaccines with 2,000% markups. Nothing returns to normal unless you take the vaccine. And just to remember, Bill Gates is neither a doctor or has ever been elected to any public office. So to conclude, that is today's investigation. The two old adages hold true. Money is the root of all evil. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that concludes today's show. Up next is Chris Smith. Thanks for listening to Compass with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio.